So as you can see from this passage, I mean, things in Jerusalem and the city are kind of a hot mess, right? Like, we're continuing uh, this morning what we started a, a few weeks ago, a little over a month ago, and that's our sermon series on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been, I've been really encouraged by the feedback that I've been hearing from you guys on, on this sermon series. Like many of you have said, man, I, I didn't know that an Old Testament book, which, uh, you know, we normally think is dry, dull, and boring, Right? Like, we, I didn't know an Old Testament book could be so fascinating, could be so relevant to what we're doing. Because we have this tendency to think of ultimate, Old Testament books as stale and boring, right? Uh, but the Bible says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful to us. All scripture is breathed out by God and useful to us. And specifically in Nehemiah, in this book, we've been learning how God works, how God works in his people and how he works through his people. And that's why it's been so helpful for us in this work of church planning, right? Because Nehemiah, this book, is a story of how God sovereignly is working through an ordinary guy to do an extraordinary work. An ordinary guy like Nehemiah to do an extraordinary work like rebuilding the walls that fortify, that protect Jerusalem. It's been this story of how God is the one who's rebuilding his city. He's rebuilding his city so that his people on the one hand can worship him faithfully again, but on the other hand, so that they can also be a faithful witness to the world. So they can worship him faithfully, but also that they can be a faithful witness to the world of God's truth, of his goodness and his beauty. So Nehemiah is more than just mere history in the Old Testament. It's, it's history that, that shows us how God thinks, how God acts, what are his priorities and what are his purposes in the world. It shows us what matters most to him. And so to catch us back up to speed, we know that when we started this series, we had a single chapter that it began with prayer, right? Nehemiah began with prayer, much like we did with here at King's Cross. Like we prayed for months leading up to the soft launch of our church. And so chapter one, it was a, pra- a chapter on prayer. And then next to that, after that, you had a, a chapter on planning, Nehemiah's planning and preparation. And after that, there was a chapter on the people, all these different people, different stripes, different backgrounds, different social statuses, all banded together. Uh, and then what we, we saw a couple weeks ago and what we're in the middle of right now is you've got three chapters on opposition. Three chapters on opposition. So we have one chapter on prayer, one chapter on planning, one chapter on the people, and now we got three chapters on opposition. It's like God wants us to get a point, right? He wants us to get that point that when you push forward on his mission, you're going to get pushed back. You're going to get pushed back through opposition, through challenges. And the last time, the thing that was threatened was the safety of God's people. The safety of God's people. But today, in chapter 5, what we see threatened is actually the unity of God's people. The unity of God's people. You see, this threat wasn't coming from the outside. Guys like Sambalat and Tobiah, remember those guys? Like, if this threat wasn't coming from the outside. It wasn't coming from those mockers and from those, those haters. It was coming from the inside, from within the household of God. You see, that's a major problem. 
It's a major problem because unity, unity is essential to mission. Unity is essential to mission. Several months ago, uh, Daryl Asuna was over at, at my house, and um, we were, uh, he was helping me build like this, this dresser slash changing table that we got from, from Ikea. Um, if you know how Ikea works, it took us hours to build this thing. Uh, and Daryl was over at my house like late hours of the night, and we were just kind of sitting, talking, working, and we're like, no. I was like, dude, you can go home. Like, we're, we're over working on this right now. Like, I'll, I'll fi- I said, I'll finish this tomorrow, right? Um, I said, I'll, I'll finish this tomorrow. And uh, he came back over, like, a week and a half later. Um, and he's like, hey, did you finish that dresser? And I'm like, of course I did not finish that, that dresser. We got it from Ikea. Um, and see, what, one, one of the things, and he, he's like, how did, you, how did you not finish it by this time? And what, what I realized is that like, I, I was almost done finishing this dresser, finishing this cha- changing table. Uh, and then like the last two pieces just like were not fitting on right. Right, and it took me days to figure out that one of like the foundational pieces that I started with, I put on backwards. I put on the wrong side, and so I learned two important lessons. IKEA is really bad <laughs> at diagrams, and secondly, that like you need different parts to fit together properly. You need them to work in unison with each other. You need them to fit together and work together the way that they were intended to fit together. Otherwise, it can't do what it was intended to do. Like, I'm not going to put my son on a 95% finished changing table, you know? Um, like, I needed to do what it's intended to do. And for that to happen, I need the parts to fit together properly. You see, that's what happens when we don't have... Unity in the church. When we don't have each part um, treating one another right, fitting together properly, you just can't. We, the church can't do the mission that was it was intended to do. And so here we are in chapter five, and we're going to be looking at two things this morning. First is the root of disunity, and secondly is the right response to sin and disunity. So two things. Some of you right now are like, wow, two points. Like, this is going to be a short sermon. No, they're just longer points. But the first point, the root of disunity, let's look at that. The root of disunity, um, I'll, I'll give you sort of the answer right up front. The uni- root of disunity is unaddressed sin. At the heart of it, any time we have disunity, any time we have disunity, the root of that disunity is going to be unaddressed sin. You see, and that's what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 5. The people, they're just not loving each other well. They're not loving each other well. There's unaddressed sin going on here, and it was not the way that God intended it to be for them. Take a look at the text that verse 1 has sort of set the scene for us. It says in verse 1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. And so here was, let me tell you like what, what's, what's going on here is that just as things were beginning to sort of like settle down and mellow out from all the oppression, from all the hate and mockers that they were dealing with in the last, in the last chapter, just as things were starting to mellow out and settle down from the external threat, issues inside the walls were starting to heat up. They were starting to brew. It says a great 
outcry arose. And so basically the people were upset. Words were had between the people. This wasn't just a pe- petty issue of preference, like, like, you know, what color should these new walls be? Like, it wasn't that kind of thing. There's a legitimate distress going on here, a legitimate problem. A great outcry arose. And what happened was, while the people of Israel, while they were busy building the wall, they didn't have time to handle, like, sort of their normal civilian matters back at home. On the farm. And so, at home and on the farm. And so, it says that this great outcry arose. Notice it says, from the people and their wives. And so, entire families are affected by this. And here's what the outcry was about. Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2, For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many. And so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And so again, in these first few verses, we see that things are a mess. They're a hot mess in Jerusalem. They're starving. Whole families are starving. You see, in their day, everyone was a subsistence farmer. You guys know what a subsistence farmer is? It means that you, you grew your own food, right? There's no, like, Trader Joseph in the, in the middle of Jerusalem where you kind of go and, like, get your food and your produce at. It's like back then, whatever you grew in your garden was what you ate at the table, And so, but since many of the people in the town, since they were busy working on, working on the wall, and because, and because of all the, all the oppression and, and, and mocking that was coming in on them, they were sort of in this military state, right? Like, because the people are either building or they're guarding and protecting. And so, everyone's busy, right? And so what that meant is back home, the crops were dying, and the city, the people, they fell into famine. People were starving. And so here you've got this small nation, the small nation of Israel. And they're surrounded by haters on the outside, by mockers, and their supplies are cut off. And now there's a famine on the inside. When it rains, it pours, right? Again, when you're on the mission of God, you're going to run across opposition and challenges. And that's what's happening to them. And so they're starving, and the poor ones end up mortgaging their fields to buy grains and and food. And they borrow money from other Jews to pay for the taxes on the fields, and the rich were basically scamming the poor. It's kind of the equivalent of like what our modern day uh, like payday loan scams. You guys seen those? Uh, like they're, they're big in the city. They're big in urban centers. You see them up all over the place. And what these, what these scam artists do is like if you're hungry, if you have no money and you're strapped for cash, then what they do is they'll give you a loan on your paycheck. They'll give you a loan that they hold, uh, and they, they hold your, pay, your check until payday, and they'll charge like 50% interest. So if you're supposed to get paid like $1,000 on payday, they'll give you $500 right now, and then you owe them your whole paycheck on payday. It's a total scam, right? But people do it all the time. People do it all the time, and it's not because they don't know better. It's simply because they're hungry. They're poor. And there's other people that are looking at it as an opportunity to take advantage of them. It's a total scam. 
Like, that's what's happening here. The rich Jews are ripping off the poor Jews, and it just kind of piles on more and more. Like, you think it's bad enough, but look, it gets worse. Look at verse 5. He says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Uh, In other words, they're saying, like, look, we all come, like, we're all part of one big national family. He says, Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for other men Other men from the same nation have our fields and our vineyards. How crazy is that? Like, how gnarly is that? The the people are in such bad shape that they're selling their sons and daughters as, like, indentured servants in order to pay off their debts. That's how bad it is. That's how awful it is. And the worst part is who's behind all this other than other people from the same nation? They're neighbors. Remember in verse 1, it says, There arose a great outcry uh, from the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Their Jewish brothers were the ones doing this to them. And they were actually directly disobeying Scripture. You see, back in Leviticus, um, God actually says through Moses, Look, don't take your Christian brothers and sisters and make them your slaves. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. That's actually written in their law. It's almost like God knew that they had it, this darkness in their heart, that, that they'd be prone to wander in this way at some point. It was written in their law. So they had totally failed at God's command to them. Uh, and the people of God are taking advantage of the people of God. And that's why they're crying out. You see, that is really the root of disunity. That is the root of disunity. That's what causes us to sin against each other. It's when we love ourselves so much that we have so little love for others. It's when we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. It's when we see ourselves as really better than others. Paul speaks into this in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we see the root of disunity is basically the opposite of this passage. You want to know what causes disunity? It's when you're doing the opposite of this passage. The root of disunity is selfish ambition. It's conceit. It's being so self-absorbed. It's when you consider yourself more significant than the person next to you. That's what causes disunity. You see, we, we need to sort of push the pause button here at this point because, and, and have some, some sort of like real talk regarding our, our own lives. Okay? Some real talk regarding our own lives. Like we all have this tendency when we're reading passages of scripture like this one in Nehemiah 5 to sort of distance ourselves from the story of scripture. We distance ourselves from the story of scripture and we sort of look down from our ivory tower. We look down from our high horse at the screw-ups in the Bible on these pages at the unfaithful people of God and we say, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they do that. I would never scam others. I would never enslave others, right? If you compare your own outward appearance to their outward appearance, and you feel pretty great about yourself. You feel pretty dapper about yourself. You say, like, I don't consider myself 
more significant or important or valuable than, than others. But look, I want us instead to consider this passage of Scripture, Nehemiah 5, as sort of like this mirror. This mirror that we set up in front of us. Like imagine that these words were a mirror that you hold up in front of you. And you're asking God, God, through this passage, would you reveal the mess in my own life? Would you reveal the mess in my own life? Would you reveal the ways that I'm prone to contribute to disunity in your church? Ways that I'm prone to contribute to disunity in your community. You see, Jesus said that, like, he says, look, like, if you have anger in your heart, just anger in your heart, like, you're guilty of murder. You've murdered in your heart. You see, the seed that, that is on the inside is just as bad as what happens on the outside. It's no different. That's what Jesus said. And so we need to ask ourselves, like, look, we're not enslaving one another here, right? I mean, I hope we're not, right? Like, no one's here, ensla- no one here is enslaving each other, um, But man, we have the seed of that in our hearts. We have the seed of disunity in our hearts. And so ask yourself, where does selfish ambition show up in my life? Where does conceitedness show up in my life? Do I look at anyone differently because of the way that they look? Because of their personality? Because of their social status? Their spiritual status? You know, they're not as spiritual as I am or some other perceived issue that you have that makes you think that you're better than them or that makes you feel like they're lesser than you. Like, do you look, is there any of that in in your heart? Like, what are the ways, ask yourself, what are the ways that I'm considering myself more significant than others, more valuable than others? What in your in your heart toward others is is it that's that's threatening the unity? In this church, a threatening unity in God's church. I want us to look now at how Nehemiah responds to this situation. And so that's our second big point, is the right response to disunity. Nehemiah sees this issue. He sees not only the problem in their hearts, but the problem that's fleshed itself out in slavery amongst each other. And it says in verse 6, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He says he was very angry. Look, it's, it's okay to get angry when injustice is happening. It's okay to get upset when the unity of God's people, when the unity of the local church is threatened by unaddressed sin. Like, that should upset us. You see, sometimes we think that getting upset or that anger is kind of like anti-Christian, right? Like, oh no, that's not gracious. Like, like when we think of the word anger, we think anger equals sin, right? Like, like are, are people, godly people like Nehemiah, are they, are they really allowed to get angry? And the answer is actually like, yes, they are, if the occasion fits. If the occasion fits. Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say, don't get angry. It just says, look, when you, when you are angry, don't, don't sin. Don't sin when you're angry. So somehow, there's a way to be angry. There's a way to be upset. And yet not be in sin. Francis Schaeffer said, there are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. Like, this is one of those times. 
Most of us are familiar with the story of Jesus in Matthew 21, when Jesus went into the temple. And what he saw was that there were some people in the temple that were ripping off other people in the name of God. Selling things and ripping, rip, ripping off other people in God's name. Another total scam, right? And so what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He gets angry, he rebukes them, and Jesus walks in and he starts flipping over their tables. You see, we can have, we could have unrighteous anger when we're angry for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways, in ways that lead us to sin. But there is good reasons to be upset. There are good reasons to, um, to get angry. You see, Nehemiah was angry because he knew that unaddressed sin was causing harm to the most vulnerable people, to the most vulnerable people, and that that was causing disunity. Nehemiah is like, look, what's the point of building, of rebuilding Jerusalem, of refortifying its walls, if we don't have a holy, unified people of God to dwell with him there? What's the point? Like, what's the point of rebuilding Jerusalem without a holy and unified people of God to dwell with him there? Like, isn't that the point? Like, the point of establishing new walls around Jerusalem wasn't so that they could play this, like, the most epic game of racquetball, right? Like, that wasn't the point of, like, building these walls. They didn't return to the city just to lounge around and to hang out all day. They were on a mission, They were on a mission. Remember, their mission was twofold. It was to establish, reestablish the faithful worship of God, but also to be a witness of God to the nations. That was their mission, to worship God faithfully again and now to be a witness to Him, of Him, to the nations. What's the point of rebuilding God's city without a holy people to dwell with God there? You see, and that's the point of the local church. That's the point of a church plant, of a new church community, is to faithfully worship God and to be a faithful witness to Him. You see, the best thing about King's Cross Church is not going to be the preaching. It's not going to be our programs. It's going to be in the way that we just delight in Jesus and the way that we display His life and His character to each other and to the world. That's the point. You see, if the people of God are not going to live as the people of God, holy and set apart in worship, in community, and on mission, then who even cares if these walls get rebuilt? That's what Nehemiah's point. That's why he's so upset. He's like, who even cares if these walls get rebuilt if we're not going to live as the people of God? You see, God is more concerned He's more about and more concerned about the spiritual strength of his people than he is about the physical strength of these walls. God is more about the spiritual strength of his people than he is about the physical strength of the walls. Let's continue. Look at verse 7 with me. He says... (coughs) Again, this is Nehemiah speaking. Nehemiah says, I took counsel with myself. He pondered this. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. 
They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so Nehemiah calls them out, and they're just speechless. They're standing speechless. Look at verse 9. He says, So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Remember, the reason they're rebuilding these walls to faithfully worship God and to be a faithful witness of him, to be what Jesus calls salt and light. And Nehemiah is reminding them right here in verse 9 that outside the city, he's like, look, the nations are watching in. And some people are watching just to mock them, just to jeer at them, just to make jokes about them. Some of them are watching just to mock, but others are watching in just out of sheer curiosity to see, like, what does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to follow their God? And you see, the same will be true of us. There will be those who are looking in at, like, this strange thing that we're doing, starting a new church community. And some might be looking to to mock what we're trying to do, but others might be looking out of sheer curiosity. What does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to be a church community? What does it mean to participate in God's mission on the world? Like some of them are watching out of sheer curiosity to learn about that. Jesus says, look, they will know you are my disciples by your love. You see, they'll know who we follow by the way that we love each other, by the way that we treat each other. You see, Nehemiah knows that their lack of love for each other, this situation that's sort of been brewing, this outcry that arose, that is threatening not only their spiritual health inwardly, but it's threatening their witness to the watching world. And so Nehemiah responds. He responds with anger. He responds with getting upset, but also with he responds with Repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is when you turn yourself around. It's when you turn from a wrong way of living and turn yourself on a new path, a right way of living. You have to love what Nehemiah does. You look at verse 10. He says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants, we are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Did you notice that? Nehemiah, he included himself in that charge. Like, he wasn't doing what all the other guys were doing, but he knew that he played a role. He knew that he contributed in some sense. He knew that there was something that he did that needed to change, that needed adjusting, and he took ownership of it. He took ownership of it. He said, I and my brothers and my servants, we're lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this. Let us cut it out. You see, even godly leaders like Nehemiah aren't perfect. No one expects them to be, right? But they do need to be trustworthy. They do need to be trustworthy. They do need to have lives that are worthy of following, lives that are marked with repentance. Godly leaders need to confess their own sin, and that's what Nehemiah did in verse 10. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, he's still speaking to them. He says, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Verse 12, then, he said, then they said, 
We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised, he said. Uh, And in the end of verse 13, he says, And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. You see, this is a beautiful picture in these few verses. It wasn't just Nehemiah who responded with a repentant heart. It was all of them. (laughs) It was all the people of God. You see, Nehemiah modeled that repentance to them, but they all responded in that way. They all responded in repentance. They said, Amen. We're sorry. We know. We, We own that. We're sorry. We'll fix it. We'll do as you say. You see, a spiritually mature person is someone whose life is marked by repentance. They admit when they're wrong, and they don't hesitate to express their need for God's transforming work of grace in their lives. That's what a spiritually mature person is. You see, a spiritually immature person, like a spiritual baby, is someone who says, look, I believe in Jesus. I follow Jesus. They say that with their mouth, or they believe Jesus is Lord in their head, but their whole identity, their identity of who they are, their self-image is rooted in this idea that overall, they're pretty good, they're pretty put together compared to everyone else, and that overall, they like don't really blow it. That's actually a spiritual baby. A spiritually immature person is someone who thinks that they are kind of spiritually better off than the next guy because of their performance. It's the irony. See, if you're a spiritually mature person, then your identity, your self-image, your grasp of who you are is rooted. It's rooted in the fact that you are a son or daughter of the Father. A father who loved us so much that he sent his son. You're rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. That's what we talked about last week, right, in Ephesians. You're rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus, and you know that you are an undeserving sinner in desperate need of grace. So then when someone points out something wrong with you, you actually ponder that truth in it, the truth in it, and and you own it. I was reading in a a book... uh, on prayer by, by Paul Miller, and in that he quotes uh, his father, Jack Miller, uh, who, like, whenever he used to, to get uh, criticism as a pastor from other, other people, uh, people would criticize him. His response was always, uh, man, you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> Most of the time they were, like, completely wrong, but he would search for that kernel of truth and say, man, you don't even know the half of it. That's what a spiritually mature person is. See, I want to be more like that. I want us to be a church community that is more like that, that is marked by repentance. You see, repentance actually puts us in touch with who we really are, with who we truly are, that we are unlovable people who are supremely loved by God, by a gracious God. We are unlovable people who are supremely loved by a gracious God. You see, repentance gets us deeper into the love, deeper into the mercy, the beauty, the grace of the gospel that we live in as Christians. As we, as we move to closing, let's, let's read the last few verses beginning in verse 14. 
Nehemiah continues, he says in verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, that's 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. You see, this is where we, we, the point in the story that we see that Nehemiah, he was, Nehemiah, like, he was, he was much more than sort of this glorified construction manager, right? Like, Nehemiah was more than a glorified construction manager. He is officially appointed governor of Judah. He was officially appointed governor over the region, over the region that the people of God were living in. And what we see in these verses is that with that, with that role, with that title, comes certain privileges, certain royal privileges that he actually gets to take from others in order to feed and provide for himself and his family. But what we see is that instead, Nehemiah, he didn't take those privileges. He didn't take those privileges that was, that was rightly his, that was given to him. He didn't take those privileges. He actually voluntarily emptied himself of those privileges so that he could serve the people that were sort of under his care. Read verse 16 with me. It says, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people." See, so Nehemiah, essentially, he says he was given the power, he was given the authority to take food off the table of others. Like literally in verses 14 and 15, it says that that he had that power and authority. But instead, he actually invited 150 hungry people over to his table and he gave them food. He gave them his food. You see, he was looking out for their needs, not his own. You see, that's truly countercultural. That's truly countercultural. You see, this world values, this world, this world's like worldly values, uh, basically, the, like what Nehemiah did, picks up those worldly values and turns it on its head. Like according to worldly values, if you have power, if you have authority, if you have power, then you lord it over others. If you have status, then you're part of the elite, and those people over there are not. If you're more spiritual, according to worldly values, then you should let it be known. But as people who are identified by the grace of God, by the grace of God, meaning that we recognize that we are, on the one hand, truly unlovable, but on the other hand, supremely loved by a gracious God. As people who identify with that grace, we don't live and we don't serve with badges for our self-righteousness or with patches on our shoulders for our piety. Because we follow Jesus, the king who went to the cross, we take whatever is given to us, 
Whatever is given to us, whatever position, status, resources are given to us, and we wield it, we use it in the service of others. That's what we do because we follow Jesus, the servant king. You see, that's what Nehemiah was doing. He was this great example of a servant-hearted leader. He was a great example of servant-hearted leadership. He modeled the kind of heart that the other Jews should have had, right? He modeled the kind of heart that the other Jews should have had. He was leading them by example. And so Nehemiah is this great servant leader, this great, phenomenal servant leader, but we know that his life, his ministry, his leadership actually pointed forward in time to the life, ministry, and lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, who is rightly named the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's the real head of God's people. He's the real head of the church. He's the creator of all. He's the sustainer of all that is. And if anyone has the right to sort of lord it over or to look down on others, it's him, right? If anyone has that right, it's him. Yet, in his position, in his kingship, he takes the position of a servant. In his high kingship, he willingly takes the position of a lowly servant. And instead of looking down on others, he came down to us. He didn't look down on us. He came down to us. Instead of seeking his own gain at our expense, he emptied himself so that we could gain at his expense and so that we could have a seat at his table. And those of us who are spiritually hungry this morning can be fed at that table. You see, we read a part of this passage earlier, but I want us to read the rest of it now, back in uh, forward in Philippians chapter 2. We read these first two verses earlier, but I want us to read the whole passage. Beginning in Philippians verses 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you not only... Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's why we do that. Look at verse 5. Having this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus that we follow. 
We worship and we follow Jesus, who is the God who serves. The God who emptied himself. He emptied himself to redeem you, to redeem me from the grip of our past sins and also from the power of our present sins, including the sin of lording over and looking down on our brothers and sisters. Sins that cause disunity. Sins that hinder the mission. And he transforms us by his grace into his image and we get a seat at his table. We're going we're gonna to take communion now in a, in, in a moment. Um, as we come to, 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 to receive communion, as we, as we pass it around, as we come to the Lord's table, what we're doing is we're actually looking back at the sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross, remembering that his blood was spilled and that his body was broken for us. But we're also looking forward to the great feast, to the great supper in eternity, where we're seated at the table with him. And we get, and that's the reason that we enjoy the gift of communion. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening.